I welcome you here this morning and invite you to take your copy of Scripture and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're continuing in our series, Living Like Jesus is Risen. And this morning, I'll be reading for us verses 11 to 21. If you're using one of the black Bibles underneath the chair in front of you, uh, you'll find our passage this morning on page 966. 966. Second Corinthians chapter 5, and I'll begin reading for us in verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we, but what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard Him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you and praise you for the privilege and the opportunity of worship. We thank you that we've been able to sing songs of praise to you and to hear your word read and to pray to you. And Father, we pray now that as we gather around your word that you would help us. Lord, I pray for myself and these moments of preaching that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be acceptable in your sight. I pray, Father, that you would give each one of us ears to hear this message, this word that you have given us. And, Father, I pray that we would be transformed more and more into the likeness of your Son. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, in our passage this morning, really, as we've been walking through 2 Corinthians 4 and 5, all through these verses, Paul has been describing to us his ministry. Uh, what his ministry looks like, defending his ministry to those who were in Corinth. And in our passage this morning, in verses 11 to 21 of chapter 5, Paul really kind of settles down on his ministry and describes for us and unpacks for us what ministry God has called him to. And he identifies the ministry that God has called him to in these verses as the ministry of reconciliation. The ministry of reconciliation. And that's really the subject matter of our passage this morning. 
And really what we should understand as we consider this morning, this ministry of reconciliation, is that this is a ministry that was not only given to Paul and not only given to the apostles in the first century, but now that they have passed and they are with the Lord, this is a ministry that has been handed down now throughout generations, throughout centuries to the Christian church. This is a ministry that each of us as Christ's church should be engaged in, this ministry of reconciliation. And so I want us to consider, what is this ministry of reconciliation this morning? And in our text, what we're going to focus on is really two main points. One is the message of the ministry of reconciliation. And the second is the call of the ministry of reconciliation. So the message and the call. First of all, let's consider the message of the ministry of reconciliation. Now, in order to do this, I just want to show you how prominent this theme of reconciliation is in these verses. So if you look at chapter 5, verses 18 to 21, I'm just going to read these few verses for us again. Really, I'll just read 18 to verse 20. And I want you to note how many times reconciliation is referred to in these verses by the Apostle Paul. So in verse 18, we read, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. You notice that in this passage, there are uh, at least five times here that Paul refers to this idea of reconciliation, some form of reconciliation. And this idea of reconciliation is, is really important, vital to Paul's understanding of his own ministry. Now, in Paul speaking of reconciliation, we also have to note here that in speaking of reconciliation, he's assuming that there's been a prior alienation, right? So in order for two people, in order for two parties to be reconciled, there must have previously been some fracture, some alienation in the relationship. And what we learn from Scripture is that humanity must be reconciled to God Because in her natural and fallen condition, she is alienated from God. The prophet Isaiah speaks of this alienation in Isaiah chapter 59 verse 2. Isaiah writes, Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear you. Now, this is not something I should have to spend a lot of time uh, proving my point here if we think about this idea that sin leads to broken relationships. Sin leads to alienation. Sin leads to estrangement. That's not something that really we should spend a lot of time on in terms of me having to make my case for that because we experience it every day, right? Sin in our own experiences in life, in terms of relationships with other people, we see it all the time that sin results in broken relationships. Sin results in estranged lovers. Sin results in divorce. Sin results in civil court cases. Sin results in international conflicts and wars. And what we see is that the division and the alienation that we experience at a horizontal level in terms of human relationships with one another as a result of sin only mirrors the devastation that sin wreaks in our relationship with God. Sin, we learn from the Bible, cuts us off from God. 
As a result of sin, we are estranged. We are alienated from God. We also know as a result of human experience that when a relationship is broken, when a relationship is fractured, in order for that relationship to be mended, to be brought back together, one must come forward, one must be willing to step forward and take initiative in order to see that relationship reconciled. And what Paul tells us in our passage this morning is that although God is the innocent party, although God is the offended party in this broken relationship, God took the initiative to restore the friendship and the fellowship between himself and us. You see it there in verse 18. The Apostle Paul writes, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. He makes the point again in verse 19. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. So Paul makes it very clear that the initiator in this reconciliation work is God. This is God's work. And one of the things to note as well as we think about this concept of reconciliation is just how personal it is. As we think about the concept of reconciliation, we need to understand that this has everything to do with relationship. So look there in verse 18. There's just a short phrase there. It's only about seven words. But notice how personal every word, every element of this statement is. Paul says in verse 18, God, through Christ, reconciled us to Himself. Now just take a moment to reflect on those words. God is the subject of the sentence, right? God is a person. And God is taking initiative. And what are we told here by the Apostle Paul that God has done? You see it there in the text. He is reconciled. Again, this is a very personal activity in which a relationship between two parties is being restored, is being made new. And then notice, so that's the subject, that's the verb. God's the subject, the verb is reconciled. Notice the object. He has reconciled us, persons who are created in the image of God. And how has He done this? Notice it. Paul says he's done it through Christ. So he's not done it by animal sacrifices. He's not done it by some other mechanism or rituals. But rather, God has done this reconciling work through the God-man, through the person, Jesus Christ. And to what end? You see it there in the text. That we would be reconciled or brought, and here's the words he uses, to himself. That is to God. So a personal God in a restored relationship with His personal creation. God through Christ reconciled us to Himself. And you know, sometimes you might hear people say that Christianity is really not a religion, but Christianity is a relationship. And that is in fact true. That is in fact the case. Now, unfortunately, some people might make a statement like that to kind of downplay theology or truth and say, well, you know, truth and theology doesn't really matter. What really matters is relationship. And that's an unfortunate, unfortunate case in which someone would abuse a statement like that that actually has a lot of truth to it. Theology and truth is very important. But we also know from the Scriptures that the theology and truth that we so value is useless if it does not lead us to a living, personal relationship with God. And therefore, all of the Gospel needs to be understood in very personal terms. Even as we think about the concept of sin, sin needs to be thought of in personal terms. Perhaps you've thought about sin as just simply the... the, uh, 
breaking of a law or a rule or a regulation. But the Bible speaks about sin much more deeply than that. The Bible says that sin is not just the breaking of an abstract rule or regulation, but sin is actually a rejection of a person. Sin is the rejection of the most important person in the entire universe. Sin is personal rebellion against a personal God. Not only that, but as we think about the call of the gospel, and as the gospel calls us to come and to trust this good news that we can be reconciled to God, we need to understand that the call of the gospel is not merely an affirmation of abstract ideas and principles. The call of the gospel is not merely a call to trade out our ideas about the world with a new philosophical framework. But rather, the call of the gospel is to place our hope and our faith and our confidence and our love and our trust and all that we are in a person, in the resurrected Christ, and to enter into a loving, personal, satisfying, eternal relationship with a personal God, the personal God of the universe. This, my friends, is what it means to be reconciled to God. There's another aspect of this message, though, of the ministry of reconciliation, and that is justification. So Paul starts by talking about reconciliation, but then he moves to talk about justification. And this is another important aspect of the content of this message. As we noted in verses 18 to 20, Paul uses that word reconcile five times. And twice in those verses, he indicates that the work of reconciliation takes place through Jesus Christ. So look there in verse 18, we read, All this is from God who, through Christ, reconciled us to Himself. And in verse 19, Paul writes, In Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself. Okay, so God does this work of reconciliation in and through the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. But again, we might press further and say, but how? How is it that God accomplishes this reconciling work in and through Christ? How does He reconcile the world to Himself through Jesus? And the answer is found in verse 21. Look there in verse 21 and we read these words. For our sake, He, that is God, made Him, that is Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, the word justification is not actually used in that verse, but the concept is clearly there. And this is the means by which God reconciles us to Himself. It's by the work of justification. Now, when you think of justification, you should think of a courtroom. You should think really of a cosmic courtroom in which God sits upon the throne and He is the judge of the universe. And there are others present in the courtroom. There's a prosecuting attorney. His name is Mr. Law. He is merciless. There's a defendant. That would be you and me. And there's an advocate or attorney who is present there in the courtroom. That is Jesus. And what takes place in this courtroom is that Mr. Law, the prosecuting attorney, is bringing certain charges against us. And he's after us. In no way will he let up. These charges are brought against us before the judge of the universe. And one thing we know about the judge of the universe is that because this judge is holy, because he is just, because he is righteous, there is no sense in which he can just say, oh, well, let's just forgive and forget. Let's just let bygones be bygones. If he did that, he would fail to be the just judge of the universe. He would be unfit to be the judge of the universe. 
And so Mr. Law is coming at us with charges and with accusations that over and over again we have broken the law of God. Over and over again we have rejected Him and His righteous rule and reign. And then Jesus, who is our advocate, who is our attorney, comes before the bench. And He doesn't make, he doesn't make any case on our behalf, at least not initially. In fact, He puts forward a plea of guilty. Jesus, who is our advocate, who is supposed to be our lawyer, agrees entirely with the prosecuting attorney and says, yes, my client is guilty, guilty to the full, and he deserves the ultimate penalty. But then Jesus turns to the judge of the universe and he says, and I will take the penalty in full. I will bear it all. And Jesus looks to us and he says, you may go free. In that moment, what happens, and this is what was happening at the cross of Jesus Christ when He hung there and died on that cross in our place for our sins, all of our sins and all the guilt and all the penalty that we deserve for our sin was placed on Jesus. That's what Paul means when he says, For our sake God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin. In that moment, all the sins of all God's people were placed on Jesus, were transferred to Jesus. And as Martin Luther, the great Christian reformer, acknowledges, in that moment Jesus became the peccator maximus, which is Latin for the maximal sinner. In that moment, as all the sins of all God's people were put on Jesus, Luther says that in that moment, Jesus became the greatest thief, the greatest adulterer, the greatest murderer the world has ever known. And all of the wrath and fury of God for all the sins of all His people were poured out on Jesus. Not only that, not only does Jesus serve our penalty in full, But then he turns and offers us his perfect record of righteousness. Every act of obedience, every act of worship, every act of submission, every act of humble rejoicing before his Father every day of his life on this earth is credited to our account so that when the judge of the universe issues the verdict, he declares pardoned, righteous in Christ. Now notice as Paul speaks about this message of the ministry of reconciliation, he uses two metaphors and he uses them hand in hand. This is very important to understanding the work of God's salvation. The two metaphors are, as we've spoken of them, reconciliation and justification. And they go hand in hand. In one sense, they can't be thought of separate from one another or divorced from one another. Listen to what Cranfield, uh, one author, writes on this point. Quote, Justification is a judicial term used in the law courts. A judge may acquit an accused person without entering into any personal relationship with him or her. He just announces the verdict, not guilty. The accused hardly expects to be invited over for dinner by the judge and probably hopes that he will never see the judge again. End of quote. You see, this is one of the dangers of only seeing your salvation in terms of justification. Because the reality is that in God saving us, in God's work of salvation, God is not merely interested in clearing our name 
or removing our mugshot from the jail report or scratching the charges off of our record. The judge does, in fact, have a personal interest in us. The judge, after clearing us, after pardoning us, does, in fact, invite us to his home. And he has a room for us in his house. In justification, God is after us. It is intensely personal. And now in God, we have a forever and eternal friend. So this message of reconciliation, this message of the ministry of reconciliation has to do with reconciliation. It has to do with justification. But then there's a third aspect. It has to do with the new creation. The new creation. So as we've said through the atoning work of Jesus, God justifies sinners. He declares them pardoned and righteous and forgiven. And so they're brought back to Him in right relationship, in personal loving relationship with God. But then we might naturally ask the question, but what about them themselves? What about them personally? Are they changed in any way or do they just continue on in the same thought patterns and behaviors and attitudes that they've always had? And to answer that question, Paul tells us in verses 14 to 17 that God's work of redemption in fact changes the person, changes the person radically. Look there in verses 14 to 17, we read, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So here in these verses, Paul speaks about the reality that God's work of redemption results in a new creation. And as he speaks of this idea of a new creation, Paul says that for those who are a new creation, at least three things are no longer true about them. Okay? Three things are no longer true about them. They no longer live for themselves. They no longer view Christ according to the flesh. And the old has gone and the new has come. Let's briefly look at each one of these. First of all, he says, no longer do they live for themselves. You see this in verses 14 and 15. Paul says, for the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Now in these verses, what we learn is that Christ, in His death, not only changed our status or position before God, He died to change us. So as we thought about justification, we said in Jesus' death, He was taking our guilt, He was taking our penalty for sin. But here, as Paul talks about the new creation, Paul also speaks to the fact that in Christ's death, there was a union of sorts that took place. As we place our faith in Christ, we are united to Him in such a way that when He died, we died. That is our old nature, our old sinful nature died with Christ so that the power of sin and the bondage of sin in our lives is broken. The self-centered, self-absorbed, 
dominion, reign, tyranny, power of sin in our lives is broken in such a way that we are now empowered to live lives of selflessness for Jesus. Not lives of perfection, but lives that are distinct and new. And listen, my friends, be careful here. This is critical to understanding this work of new creation because it's very easy for us. This is gospel, and it's very easy for us to turn this into law. At this point, Paul is not admonishing us. Paul is not telling us, live a selfless life for Jesus, right? That's that's calling us to do something, to obey something. Paul, rather, is telling us something that Jesus has done for us. This is not fundamentally, not first and foremost, something we do for Jesus, but something he has done for us. He died so that you might be broken free of the tyranny of selfishness. And it's by embracing that by faith and receiving that gift that then you are empowered to live that out in all the various practicalities of your life. To live a selfless life for Jesus. So they no longer live for themselves. Those who are a new creation also, secondly, no longer view Christ from the flesh. You see this in verse 16. Paul writes, from now on, therefore we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. So Paul says there was a time we regarded Christ according to the flesh, but no longer. We don't don't regard him according to the flesh anymore. And what Paul means here, if you go back, you read this in context, if you go back to verse 12, you see that what he's referring to here is this idea of regarding Christ according to outward or worldly appearance. So back in verse 12, just look there briefly, Paul is talking about this idea that the false apostles there in Corinth are judging him based on outwardly appearance. And the false apostles in Corinth judge themselves based on outward appearance. They believe they're true apostles because they're wealthy or they're prosperous or they're healthy or whatever it might be. And Paul says, no, we don't judge according to outward appearance. We judge according to the heart, according to the reality, the substance of things. So in verse 12, he says, we are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that we may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. And so then Paul takes this principle and he applies it to the way that he used to view Christ and how he views Christ now. And he says, no longer do I view Christ like I used to, just based on outward appearance, based in the flesh. But I I see Christ now for who he really is, for the reality, the substance of who he is. You know, when Jesus was on this earth, many rejected Jesus because of outward fleshly appearance. Many rejected Jesus because he was born into a simple and poor family. Many rejected Jesus because he claimed to be a king, but he had no political authority. He had no armies. He had no land. Many rejected Jesus because he was despised by others and because he died as a criminal. And before Paul's conversion, he says, that's how I, in large part, viewed Jesus. I viewed him according to the flesh. I viewed him based on outward circumstances. And as a result, I rejected him. But that is no longer the case. In Paul, it is very interesting. Paul says that his new view of Jesus is not something that's just happened in him because of his own ingenuity or wisdom or insight, but this new perspective that he has on Jesus is the result of the creative power of God working in his life. 
you go back just a chapter, in chapter 4, verses 4 to 6, notice how Paul speaks of this. Paul says, and he's speaking here of unbelievers, of those who reject Jesus, he says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So, there are those who do not believe and trust in Christ, and they do not do so because they're blind, because their hearts are darkened. So what happens? What changes? He goes on to say, For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness. Now there, Paul is referring to the creation account that took place in Genesis. When everything was dark before the creation of the universe, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. And Paul says, for God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. So how does this happen? How does someone who views Jesus according to the flesh move from seeing Jesus for who he really is? God, who created all things, who created light, says, let light shine in his heart. Let light shine in her mind. And where there was scales and where there was blindness and where there was darkness, there is now light. And Paul says, by the creative power of God, now I see Christ for who He truly is. No longer according to the flesh, but the reality and substance of who He is. So those who are a new creation no longer live for themselves. They no longer view Christ according to the flesh. And then the last thing regarding those who are a new creation, the old has gone and the new has come. Look there in verse 17. Paul says, Therefore... If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now, this is a fairly familiar passage to many of us, but it's interesting because many of the commentators point out that in the original language, if you were to just translate this literally, Paul does not include the pronoun he. So, so translators have included it to make kind of for a smoother reading, but Literally, this is what Paul wrote in verse 17. It reads this way. If anyone is in Christ, new creation. Okay? So it's not if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. It's just if anyone is in Christ, new creation. And many have pointed out that perhaps what's going on here in Paul's mind, given this translation is that not only does Paul have in mind when he thinks about the new creation, not only does he have in mind the inward transformation that takes place in the believer's heart through faith in Christ, although that surely is in his mind, but that Paul may also have in mind at the same time the larger cosmic work that takes place through Christ's redemptive work in which he is restoring and making all things new. So in other words, what Paul is saying is that the one who trusts in Christ is not only personally a new creation, but has entered into a new universe, a new age, in which God, by the redemptive power of Christ, is making all things new. Notice how one author speaks of this radical change as it applied to the Apostle Paul's life. He writes, quote, the past was dead to Paul, 
As dead as Christ on His cross, all its ideas, all its hopes, all its ambitions were dead in Christ. He was another man in another universe. End of quote. And if you are in Christ, this is true about you. Right? So, so if we are in Christ, not only are we a new creation in which we've been changed and transformed inwardly, but we have entered into a new age, into a new world in which we are being changed, in which we have entered into a new community with other brothers and sisters in Christ who are being changed, who are being transformed. God's power is working in and through us and drawing more people into His kingdom. And then when we die, we are transported into the presence of God where we will be changed and transformed transformed forever and enter into a new heavens and a new earth. So this new creation is not only just us personally, but this new creation that we enter into in Christ is a transformation of the entire cosmos. And that means, my friends, if you are in Christ, nothing will ever be the same. New creation. So at the center of this ministry of reconciliation is a message. And this message includes these three aspects of reconciliation, justification, and new creation. We could summarize it this way. The message of reconciliation is the idea that God is bringing us back into relationship with Himself. How does He do this? He does this through justification in which God has placed all our sins on Christ and declared us forgiven and pardoned and righteous in Him. And then how does that change us? How does that affect us personally? Well, we are now in Christ new creations. He has changed us and transformed us in such a way that by the resurrection power of Jesus, we are on a new course. We are able to give ourselves to live for God who has reconciled us to himself. That's the message of the ministry of reconciliation. Now secondly, the call, and we won't spend nearly as much time on this, the call of the ministry of reconciliation. This also is found in verses 18 to 21. Now, I'm going to read these verses again and just note each time that Paul refers to this call that has been placed upon his life, okay? So verse 18, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself, here it is, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Here it is again, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, here it is again, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So Paul says here in these verses that this, this ministry of reconciliation has been given to him, and we could say, I believe, by extension, has been given to Christ's church. And in this ministry of reconciliation, which has been given to us, we have been entrusted with this message of reconciliation. This message of how God redeems us and brings us in right relationship with Him and creates us anew. And this is the calling that God has placed on Paul. It's the calling that God has placed on his missionary companions. And by extension, I think it's fair to say it's the calling that Christ has placed on us, His church. 
Now, I just want to point out a couple of implications for us regarding this ministry that God has called us to. First of all, if God has entrusted us with this message, this message of the ministry of reconciliation, then we dare not alter the message or speak another message. And this is inherent in this illustration that Paul uses here in our passage, this, uh, this illustration of being an ambassador. And think about what an ambassador is, right? An ambassador is an individual that's specifically appointed by a kingdom or a nation to officially represent them to a foreign country, okay? We have ambassadors today, ambassadors meet in the United Nations all the time. Think about the work of an ambassador. Does an ambassador have the right to promote their own ideas? Does the ambassador of a country have the right to create their own policy or, or draft their own treaties? Well, of course not. If an ambassador were to do such a thing, they'd be quickly removed from their post. And, and this principle should be fundamental to the way we understand this ministry of reconciliation that we are called to. This has significant implications, in fact, for the preaching or proclamation of God's Word. Even as we think about the ministry of preaching here at Berea, we are eager at Berea that when we gather together around God's Word, that we come to, the, to God's Word with this thought in mind that, that I'm not here, if I think about this in terms of my own personal responsibility to preach the Word each Sunday, I'm not here to share my own opinions on things. I'm not here to muse about my ideas about different politics and so forth, current events that are taking place in the world. I surely should not be here to impress you with my cleverness or with my ideas. But as Paul says here, as the church of Jesus Christ, we have been given a message, entrusted with a word, and we must speak that word. God has revealed the terms of the treaty, and we are simply to announce them. This is true for each of us. All of us in one sense or another are called to be ambassadors for Christ. We've been given a message and we dare not alter it. We dare not trim it to make it more culturally acceptable. We dare not ignore it or amend it, but rather we are called to announce it and to share it. A separate implication is not only are we called to faithfully proclaim and communicate this message, but also we are called to faithfully proclaim it with the ethos with which it has been sent. What I mean by ethos is the feeling, the spirit, the character in which it has been given to us and is to be proclaimed. Notice what Paul says there in these verses. In verse 20, Paul says that he's an ambassador of Christ, and here it is, God is making his appeal through us. And then notice what he says, we implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. So Paul is pointing here to this reality that the ministry of reconciliation is not fulfilled simply by callously communicating the terms of the treaty. Just kind of reading them like a phone book, you know? No, rather, this, this work of reconciliation is a deeply personal work, as we've seen, right? In this ministry of reconciliation, God is after souls. God's after hearts. God is after people, persons. And therefore, if we are to faithful, be faithful to our calling, we must not only faithfully represent the message, but we also must faithfully represent the ethos of the message. 
There should be, and it doesn't have to be with dramatics. But even as we're talking to someone over coffee about Christ and the gospel, there should be a sense of affection in our hearts and our voices. There should be a sense that we care. There should be a sense that we're appealing, that we are in fact imploring them, that we are calling them to be reconciled to God. We should not be content with cold, canned presentations, but rather a genuine sense of urgency and affection and love. With that in mind this morning, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you're not sure whether you're a Christian, I close with this simple appeal. My friend, be reconciled to God. It's no mystery now how you can do it. You've heard it this morning. You don't have to go and try to figure it out. In fact, you don't have to pursue some long, lifelong journey to try to make it happen. This is something you could never do yourself, but the good news is God, praise God, He has done it for you. He has done it for you in His Son, Jesus Christ. You may have noticed over and over again as we've read and reflected on this text this morning, you hear this phrase, in Christ, in Christ, in Him, in Christ. Over and over again, Paul talks about this idea that we're reconciled to God in Christ. We're justified before God in Christ. We're made new creations in Him, in Christ. And so what must you do to be reconciled to God? It's very clear. It's very simple and plain. You must be found in Christ. You must be found in Him. And how can you be found in Christ? You must trust Him. Believe in Him. He is a living person. He's resurrected from the dead. He's alive now. You can go to Him. Confess your sins to Him. Profess Him to be your Lord and your Savior. Commit yourself to Him. Your life, your will, your ambitions, your love, your joy, your desires. Give yourself to Christ. Be found in Him and you will be reconciled to God. It's nothing you can do. God has done it all for you. Go to Christ and you will be reconciled to God. As Paul says here, I implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Let's pray. God, what a joy and a delight that we have been given the responsibility to proclaim this message. And it is a message of good news. Father, I pray that each one of us, even this morning in these moments, would sense how glorious and good this news is. And Father, I pray that as we sense that, that those of us who have embraced this message previously and been changed by it, that we would be eager to share it with others. Help us, Lord, to be faithful to the content of this message. And Lord, give us a warm love and affection for those that we have been called to proclaim it to. And then, Father, for those who are here this morning who may be thinking, I'm not sure I've ever experienced the reality of that message in my life. Father, we pray 
that you would do a work now that none of us can do, that by your creative power you would declare, let there be light. And in that heart, in that darkened heart that for some time has been cut off for whatever reason to your redemption and salvation, they would see Christ, not according to the flesh, but according to who He really is, the Savior of the world. And they would trust, confessing their sin, confessing their need, putting all their hope and faith in Him. And I pray, Lord, that they would be assured, even this morning, that they have been reconciled to You changed, made a new creation, justified, declared pardoned, and forgiven forever. Lord, do that work now, we pray, by your Spirit. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we ask it. Amen.